You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. Matthew 27, verse 62. The next day, that is, after the day of the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and lest or the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Let's pray together. O oh God in heaven, we grateful for your word that's here before us. We acknowledge and we thank you that it is truth without error, and it is for us a light unto our path, guides us in these dark times. How would you use the reading and preaching of your word to strengthen our hearts? Would you please save the lost, restore backsliders, strengthen your church this morning, anoint the hearing and preaching of your word, we pray. Amen. We're at the point in the narrative of Matthew's gospel where Christ is dead and he is in the tomb, as we saw last week. And now at this point, two members of the Sanhedrin have buried him with honor in a very expensive tomb, as we noted last week. His death atoned for our sins, and all of creation acknowledged that, as we have seen before. And today we see that even with Christ dead, the religious leaders are still on edge. Is he is a terrible dread to their imaginations. You'd think if they'd worked this long to have him killed as they did, that they'd finally be able to get a good night's sleep. But they couldn't. Because as it is with wicked men, is their consciences and their imaginations forever plague them. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion, as the scriptures tell us. And so these men are jittery, you could say. They're on edge. As Christ haunts, as the dead Christ haunts their imaginations. So what they do is they approach Rome to help them secure the tomb. They need some help, and they want to make sure that the tomb is secured. And so who else to better to secure the tomb than the most powerful government the world has ever known? And so they approach Rome to have the tomb secured. The irony is that their extra effort to secure the tomb is exchanged into proof of the resurrection. And so their effort to secure the tomb of Christ sets the stage for the theater of God's glory. And this is the way it works with wicked people. God is, I hope you've seen this in Matthew's gospel and other narratives of scripture that I've gone through and that you read. I hope you've seen it that God often works in irony. He enjoys having a good laugh over the schemes of the wicked. And this is clear in scripture. And he has a good laugh over these men in this text today. 
It establishes that not even false religion nor the power of the state can hinder the work of Christ. So even if false religion and the power of the state collaborate and are backed by the forces of Satan, it will not hinder the work of Christ. No, it will set the stage for the glory of Christ. This is the way the world works. And this little plot demonstrates a collaboration between Roman superpower and the apostate Jewish religion to keep Christ's body in the tomb. Divide my text up with five, or sorry, three headings to help you follow along today. I give you the headings so you can kind of get back on track, right? Sometimes I see some of you snoozing or something like that in my sermon, and so if I go on to the next point, it's like, oh, I can wake up and now I'm, you know, here's a road map. I can get back on, right? So the first heading is the day. It's the Sabbath. That's the day that it is. The second heading is the visit. The religious leaders visit with Pilate. And then thirdly, the action. The tomb is secured. The visit, or sorry, the day, the visit, and the action. The little plot demonstrates a collaboration between Roman superpower and the Jewish leaders to keep Christ's body in the grave. And all of those headings, those three headings, establish the incontrovertible, incontrovertible fact that nothing can hinder the work of Jesus Christ. No, nothing. Proving that thwarting an attempt to thwart the plans and the power of God is impossible. In fact, if the governments of this world would like to collaborate to change the orbits of the planet, the planets in the sky and the heavens, they would have a better chance at success. If they would like to collaborate to make motions in parliament, Suspend the laws of gravity, they would be much more successful than seeking to hinder the work of God. And if they would like to make it law to extinguish the sun or drain the ocean, they'd be better using their times. Because the work of God will go on. And in fact, when the powers of this world and the powers of hell itself collaborate to thwart the work of God, all is they're doing is setting the stage for the theater of God's glory. Nothing will stop the power and purposes of God. So let's look at my first heading this morning, which is the day on which all of this occurs, which is the Sabbath. It is the Sabbath day. Six days shall you labor. On the seventh day, you shall rest. And this is the seventh day. Verse 62 says the next day, okay, there's a time indicator. That is after the day of preparation. And so this is telling us about the time. It's the next day. It's the day after the burial of Christ. It's the day after the crucifixion of Christ. It is the Sabbath day after the Friday, and it's called here the day after the day of preparation. Now, you might see that little phrase, the day of preparation. You might say, well, what does that mean? And often, or always, the best comment uh, 
commentator on Scripture is Scripture itself. The best commentary on Scripture is Scripture itself. And Mark actually tells us what the day of preparation was in Mark 15:42. It says, when evening had come since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath. And so the idea is, is that before the Sabbath, you had a day to prepare for the Sabbath. And so this is the day after the day of preparation, which is the Sabbath, which is just a cute way of saying it's the Sabbath. I think the reason it's called the day, of, or the day after the day of preparation in our text as opposed to the actual Sabbath is simply to point out the folly of these men in their hypocrisy, and that is that they use the day of preparation to prepare for a Sabbath that they wouldn't rest on. They're restless on the day of rest. It's primarily to point out their hypocrisy, these religious leaders. I'll explain. Their hypocrisy is on full display here. You understand that in Matthew chapter 12, the Pharisees castigated Jesus for allowing his disciples to pick grain on the Sabbath. Right? They claimed to take the Sabbath day very seriously. And right after they castigated Jesus for allowing his disciples to pick grain on the Sabbath, Jesus went into the synagogue and he healed a man with a shriveled hand on the Sabbath. And that lit them up. And it lit them up so much in Matthew chapter 12 that Jesus healing the man on the Sabbath provoked them. It's in that part of Matthew where it actually provokes them to begin to plot to kill Jesus. So it was, he wasn't violating the Sabbath, by the way, by healing a man on the Sabbath, but they accused him of doing that. And so it was their, Jesus never broke the law of God. It was their perceived, it was their perception, or at least their allegation, that he violated the Sabbath that provoked them to plot to kill Jesus because they claimed to love the Sabbath day, right? It, this is, you got to see the folly in this. It was their claim that they so loved the Sabbath day that it was their zeal for the Sabbath day that provoked them to plot to kill Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 12. What happened in Matthew chapter 12? Jesus healed a man whose hand was shriveled up in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. That angered them. It infuriated them that he would do such a thing bold-faced on the Sabbath and so their apparent zeal for the Sabbath day prompts them to begin plotting to kill Jesus. <laughs> Interestingly enough, their feigned love of the Sabbath in the fourth commandment here shows itself to be feigned because here they violate the Sabbath day by working extra hard to secure the tomb. To them, the Sabbath day here is not a day of rest, but... It's a day of restlessness because they cannot trust God, these men. If you rest on the Sabbath, it's an indication that you are a man of faith because you can trust God to provide for you for seven days what you work six days for. Well, these men cannot rest on the Sabbath day. They work hard on the Sabbath day. Why? Well, because they want to secure the tomb. They want to work against the creation of God, and they want to work against God himself in violation of the fourth commandment. Therefore, the time marker in verse 62, where it says the next day, that is, after the day of preparation, points out 
their insincerity and the hypocrisy of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. It points out their Sabbath violations as they used their allegation that Jesus violated the Sabbath is reason to kill him in Matthew chapter 12. They're fools. And now the whole world knows it. And the Romans know it. Everyone knows it. They're fools. Calling it a day after the day of preparation borders on, by Matthew, Matthew is bordering on mockery here. I think Matthew's actually laughing at them as he writes this. Because he, he doesn't call it the Sabbath day, he calls it the day after the day of preparation. Why? Because they prepared hard to rest on the Sabbath so they could work real hard on the Sabbath. Ha ha. Right? What a bunch of clowns. Clown world, right? This is what it is. See, Matthew loved to point out clown world in the first century. And it existed there too, just as much as it does today. And clown world does deserve to be laughed at and have funny memes made about it. And that's what, <laughs> verse 62 is a meme. That's what it is. It's a meme, okay? It's a meme. They worked hard to have everyone think, this is the joke. They worked hard to have everyone think they were preparing the Sabbath only so they could work hard on the Sabbath. That's what I'm trying to say. Their hypocrisy is self-evident. They worked hard to prepare for the day of rest so they could work hard on the day of rest. That's the day. That's the day. It's the Sabbath day. That's our first heading. The second heading is the visit. The religious leaders visit Pilate. The religious leaders visit Pilate. The chief priests and the Pharisees, instead of Resting and worshiping on the Sabbath, visit Pilate in verse 62. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. Now, you've got to remember who these people are. The chief priests were mostly Sadducees. That was a division of the Jewish leadership um, that actually denied the resurrection. They didn't believe that there would be a resurrection from the dead for humanity. And the Pharisees were perceived as the more conservative wing of the Jewish establishment. They were perceived as the garters of conservatism, and they believed in a future resurrection, and they tried to convince people that they were biblical literalists. And so you had two parties within the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin was the ruling council. It was a 71-man panel. It was basically the, the House of Commons, the Senate, and the Supreme Court all in one. They had judicial and religious power in Israel, and that was the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin was composed of religious leaders, and among those religious leaders were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. It was the Sanhedrin that tried Jesus in the show trial, the kangaroo court, and then pushed Jesus off to the Roman courts to have him executed because they'd lost the powers of execution. The Pharisees were moralists and often seen as conservers of tradition, Whereas the chief priests, the Sadducees, were not necessarily perceived as moralists. They, had, they didn't take the scriptures literally as the Pharisees did and didn't believe in miracles like a future resurrection. But they worked together. They got along. And the reason they got along in this case, they didn't always get along, but the reason they got along here is because they hated Jesus Christ. Pilate, as we look at this text, the chief priests and the, and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. Who's Pilate? Well, for review and to explain to you, 
Pilate was the Roman governor. He was appointed by Rome, and he's appointed by Rome over Judea. Why? Because there were typically uprisings in Judea, religious uprisings, religious fanaticism was everywhere. And Rome appointed Pilate because Judea had become a Roman colony, and Rome appointed Pilate to keep things under control. So he represents the Roman government, and the Pharisees and the religious leaders, the high priests, represent the Hebrew, the Jewish government. So you have two governments coming together in this scene. And if you remember, the last time these two governments come together was the crucifixion of Christ. Right? So now they're coming together again. These two governments are coming together. Under normal circumstances, none of these parties would have got along. They wouldn't work together. But they are united in contempt of Jesus Christ. And so the religious leaders have been plotting since Matthew chapter 12 to kill Jesus. Months they've been plotting to kill Jesus. So you'd think that now that, like, I don't know whether you've done this, but if you've had a, a project that you've been working on with a team and you've been working on that project for months on end, and maybe even years on end, and you've been strategizing how to get it done, how to get it done, how to get it done, and finally you reach the point in your project where project is complete and the file's put away. You ever done that? What do you, what do you usually do? You have a little party, you rest, you take a little bit of time off, you enjoy the fruits of your labor. Well, these guys have been working hard for a long time. Why? Well, they've been working hard to kill Jesus. And so this plot, they've been working and working and working and striving and striving and striving. And finally, they reach the place where they want, they got Jesus dead. They got what they've been working for. And guess what? They keep working. They don't stop working. They keep working. Why? Because their consciences are plagued. And instead of resting, they're now in full panic mode. This is how wicked people are. They can't rest. They can't rest. They, they don't sleep at night. They toss and turn in their sleep because their consciences won't let them go and they enter panic mode and they try to run around and cover their tracks. That's how wicked people operate. The righteous man sleeps well at night, but the wicked do not. Christ's words, though he's dead at this point, still haunt them. He's playing in their minds. Like he's dead in the tomb, but he's got rent free in their brains. And what's going on? Well, you can look at verse 63. And verse 63 says, And said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, While he was still alive, after three days I will rise. And then so they remember that he'd issued this prophecy. And the prophecy that he issued was that he would rise again from the dead. And this statement, these six little words, are bouncing around in their little brains. And they're like, oh, he did say that. Ugh, he did say that. Ugh, he did say that. And this is just playing on them. It's just eating them, eating them, eating them, eating them. In verse 63, it haunts them. They're in full panic mode trying to make sure that that body stays in that tomb. They address Pilate in verse 63 as sir. They will not mention Jesus' name. Instead, they call him an imposter. So they show great respect towards Rome. And they show great contempt towards Jesus by calling him an imposter. And they remember, his, they remember his words. While he was still alive, he said, after three days, he will rise from the dead. And they're terrified of that. Absolutely terrified. It's interesting how many times that prophecy was actually 
repeated in the Gospel of Matthew. So I'll just give you a little survey of Matthew's Gospel for a second here, of how many times Jesus predicted his own death and resurrection. And, if, and you see it in Matthew chapter 12, for example. I'll show you about five or six verses here where he says this. Matthew 12, verse 40, he says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Okay? Matthew 16, just a few chapters over, he says something similar. Verse 21, he says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Right? Turn over to Matthew 17, verse 22 to 23, and it says, As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. See, this is repeated over and over again in his teaching. He teaches it over and over. So you can't forget this prophecy. Matthew chapter 20, similarly, and is in verse 17, and as Jesus is going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he'll be raised on the third day. You see? The prophecy still lived on in the memory of the population, because as people knew about Jesus... They knew he was the guy that talked about dying and being raised again on the third day. And he talked about this a lot. And because he emphasized it so much, it was playing in their minds. It was alive in their heads. So you got to understand that. It lingered. And so, on this day of rest, this Sabbath day of rest, they're busy working hard. And what they're busy working hard doing is ensuring that this prophecy does not become true, or at least that it's not perceived to be true. They do not want that body out of the grave, and they do not want people talking about that body out of the grave. And so they're going to work hard to make sure it doesn't happen. This is how sin works, by the way. Listen, if you want to live in sin, just know this, that you're not just going to spend energy committing your sin you're going to spend great energy covering up your sin. Okay? You don't just spend energy on the sin. You spend energy covering up the sin. So don't forget that. This is what they're doing. And there is no rest for the wicked. Why? Because their consciences plague them, and they're trying to cover up their sin. They will not rest, because rest is a sign of faith and trust in God. And instead of resting... They're working hard against God. J.C. Ryle commented and he insightfully said, the restless enmity of these unhappy men could not sleep even when the body of Jesus was in the grave. And listen to what their, their concern is in verse 64. They really bring up their concern. Verse 64, they come to Pilate already and they say, Therefore, I order that the tomb be made secure... Until the third day, lest the disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. So see those few little words there? They're terrified of him. They, don't, they do not, look at, they do not want it stated that he has risen from the dead. That's the last thing they want. 
he has risen from the dead, are the words that haunt them. And why do they haunt them, Bill? Because these men are demons. They're operating by demons. They're demonic shills. And those are the words that haunt hell. Hell is terrified of those words. And, and so they claim that they fear the disciples stealing the body. And if the disciples steal the body, what are people going to say? He is risen from the dead. That's what they claim. They, they claim that they fear the disciples stealing the body, but they really fear is that the people will say he's risen from the dead. That's the big fear. Do you see that? The, the, the front is, we don't want the body stolen, but what's driving that is this, this terror that has possessed them, that people will go around saying that he's risen from the dead. So do you, do you think that, I mean, the disciples are all cowering. Judas has hanged himself. Peter's denied the Lord three times. The disciples are all, you know, in the, at this point, they've, they've, they're, they're terrified because their Savior's been killed. They've abandoned Jesus. So do you really think the disciples are going to steal a body? Like, how real of a fear is that? And not only that, if they steal a body, what are they going to do with the body? What good is a stolen body if you're going to run around claiming someone's risen from the dead? And let's say, there, so there's 11 disciples left because one went killed himself. So there's 11 left. How easy, like, it's hard for two people to keep a lie, right? Like, if, like I don't know if anyone ever told you this, but someone once told me, if you're ever going to commit a crime, commit it on your own. Because if you commit it with someone else, right? Now, I'm not going around committing crimes, so I'm just... But that's what I heard, okay? The only crimes I've committed are opening the church. That's it. Maybe a little bit of speeding here and there. But other than that, you know, the record's clean. But look, 11 guys are going to keep a secret about a stolen body? Like, this is so outrageous. And what gain is there in a corpse? Like, are you going to give your life for a dead corpse? You might bury your dead with honor, as you should, but you're going to give, like these apostles went on to give their lives. So you're going to give your life for a dead corpse? So you, do you think there's something else going on here? This is what I'm trying to say. It's how ridiculous this is. Do you think there's something else driving them other than the fear of a stolen body? Like, I'm, I'm reading this, and I'm hearing those words, he is risen, and how much those words are haunting them. And I'm thinking, yeah, they actually might be in their hearts thinking, what if he's right? And we've got to get that tomb sealed. Because if something goes down, this is not going to be good. But either, we're, either way, they're hung up on that little phrase, he is risen from the dead. As John Trapp said, dead men bite not, but here Christ, though dead and buried, bites and beats hard upon evil men's consciences. They could not rest the whole night before for fear he should get out of the grave some way and so create them further trouble. Dead men don't talk, but this dead man talks in their consciences. And his voice is eating them up from the inside. Now, 
Look at the text again and, and tell me you don't chuckle at this. What's, what are they so afraid of? Right? They're so afraid of, they're going to steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. Does that not make you chuckle? I mean, how many times have we said he's risen from the dead? Like for 2,000 years we've been saying that. And in fact, it's the common Easter greeting. He is risen. He's risen indeed. How many of our hymns say he's risen from the dead? How many sermons have I said he's risen from the dead? How many prayers have we prayed where we've acknowledged that he's risen from the dead? How many confessions and doctrinal statements and, and creeds of the church declare that he's risen from the dead? Right? So they're, they're, what's terrorizing these men is that some little mouse in the corner is going to squeak out that he's risen from the dead, and here we are still thundering that he's risen from the dead. I hope you see that. And not only that, that, that's chapter 27, but if you go down just to chapter 28, verse 6, it says, as soon as chapter 28, verse 6, it says, he is not there, for he has risen. I just gave away the plot, right? And then you go down to verse 7, and then it says, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. Right? Those, that phrase is destroying them. But yet, it is that phrase that has been repeated again and again as a confession of the church throughout the ages. The true church has declared that he's risen from the dead. That's what they're hung up on, to keep people from saying those words. And so, and they're fearful because if that happens, they say, the last fraud will be worse than the first, which simply means that the declaration that he's risen from the dead will validate every other claim that he's ever made. They know it. If, if Christ is still in the dead, we're fools. But if Christ has risen from the dead, every single one of his claims have been validated. And so we are the wisest and the most envied of all if he is risen from the dead. Now let's go on. What do they want Rome to do in this little passage here? Well, they want Rome, in verse 64, Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure be made secure. Well, they want Rome to secure the tomb, and that's what they request Pilate to do. Why do they need Pilate? Well, they need Pilate because maybe the tomb's on private property, and they might need a court order to secure the tomb. I don't know, but I suspect that the reason that they're going to Rome to secure the tomb is because they need the highest power, the most powerful instrument at their disposal to secure the tomb. Godless men, men who do not have Christ, Christless men, they're godless. They turn to the highest perceived power that they had with, have with their faith. And if you're godless, what is the highest power that is available and accessible to you? It's the government. So what are they doing? They're Christless, they're godless, and so they're turning to Rome to propagate their lies. They're, a, they're first century lobbyists, is what they are. And so they're lobbying Rome because they hope that if they can curry Rome's favor, that Rome will be able to use all of its might and all of its power and all of its glory to suppress the truth. If we can get Rome on our side, then we can stop this Jesus guy, even though we've already killed him. 
They know there's something real about him. And so they figure if they, they're going to work hard on the Sabbath day, restless on the Sabbath, restless on the day of rest, to curry the favor of Rome, to get Rome to do all that's in its power, to prevent people from saying, he is risen from the dead. It's really quite the scene. They want the power of Rome to keep those words from ever being uttered. Now, the joke's on them, right? Because they're uttered all the time now. Well, that's the second heading, right? It's the day, I had the day, the Sabbath day. We got this visit, religious leaders meeting with Pilate. And then now we have the action. This is where the plot really gets interesting really starts to get heated up. The action. The tomb is secured, <laughs> right? It's a bit of a joke, but the securing of the tomb. The request from Pilate and Pilate, they, they, actually, they request action from Pilate. They lobby Pilate, and Pilate grants their request in verse 65. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. Now, let's look at that. The statement there, you have a guard of soldiers, is somewhat of a translational issue. So some people translate it as um, an, a statement of him granting them soldiers, so you can have my soldiers. And then some people translate it as Pilate saying, you already have soldiers, as in you have temple guards that you can employ yourselves. So I think it's the former, not the latter. I think what's going on here is Pilate, Pilate's not saying you have your own soldiers. Pilate is saying, you may have soldiers. You may have my guards. And the reason I think that is just is the context and the various words that are used within our text here. But you'll see this come out in different translations and different commentaries. The, the word for guard, for example, in our text here is, is not a Greek word. It's a Greek transliteration of a Roman word, custodia. It's the Roman word for custodian. Okay. And so this indicates that it's a Roman concept that they're requesting from Pilate. It's Roman guards that they're requesting from Pilate. And then beyond that, the word that's used to describe these guards in chapter 28, verse 12, a little later on, is the same word that is used throughout Matthew to describe Roman soldiers. And then even further in chapter 28, verse 14, the soldiers, we see very clearly that they answer to Pilate. And so these are Pilate soldiers, these aren't temple soldiers. So this is the power of Rome that is being used to keep those words from being uttered. So they've employed the power of Rome to keep the words, he has risen from the dead, from ever being uttered. Now, Pilate gave them soldiers to secure the tomb, and so you might be thinking, well, how many soldiers did Pilate give them? How many did he get? I don't know, it's whatever they wanted, I guess. You may have them. Whatever you guys need to secure this tomb and keep those, you can have the soldiers that you want to keep those words from being uttered. Here you boys go. Have at her. And so the ordering of the soldiers, Pilate, and, and he orders the soldiers, he tells them to go seal the tomb, and Pilate makes a funny little statement. This is a really funny passage. I actually find it quite humorous. And he makes this funny statement. Tell me you won't laugh at this if, as you look at the statement. Pilate said to them in verse 65, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. Did you get that? I think it's kind of funny. 
Well, it's, it's almost like, it's like, have fun, boys. Make it as secure as you can. And I think, like, Psalm 2, verse 4 tells us that God sits in the heavens and laughs at the plans of the wicked. So I think when Pilate said this, I'd like to imagine that when Pilate said this, God was sitting in the heaven with a big old belly laugh and thinking, yeah, we'll see, right? He's, and this is the way the Lord works. He's, he's sitting in heaven, and he's laughing at the plans of the wicked because they think they're so smart, they think they're so powerful, and let's just see. <laughs> you think that Rome's going to prevent people from saying he's risen from the dead? <laughs> Wait till you see what I got planned for the next few thousand years, right? And, and this is what happens. For the next few thousand years, that's all the church talks about. Is that Christ is risen, right? So let's see what you boys can do. Give us your best shot. And they do. They give him their best shot. The soldiers are deployed to guard the tomb. And the tomb, we are told, is sealed. Verse 66. So they went made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Sealed and guarded. So when you hear the word seal, you're going to think it's fused together somehow. And that's likely what it was. Maybe it's wax or concrete. I don't know. We already know that the stone's been rolled down a hill, so the stone is set there. The only way to get rid of the stone is to push it up a hill. That's the way these old tombs work for the rich men, is they had special tombs where the door naturally sealed, and then there's some type of extra seal that's put on here. But I think when you hear the word seal, what you should probably be hearing is some type of official sealing on the tomb that indicates this is sealed and certified by the office of Pontius Pilate. This is what most of the commentators would agree, is that there's some type of official government verification that this meets quality control of Rome itself, right? So if you look at, and we do this in our own country, so if you look at your driver's license, what does it say on it? Province of Ontario, it's got to be right now, right? Or if you look at our currency, you got a $20 bill or you got a loony or a quarter, there's some type of government seal on that or government insignia that's indicating that this is certified and true, right? Or your birth certificate, your passport, government documents, there's, there's something on them. Have you ever ordered, have you ever seen... Um, uh, some type of precious metal that has been certified by the Canadian Mint. There's some type of seal that is imprinted, branded into the metal that indicates that this is approved by the Canadian Mint and therefore it's, it's good. Or if cattle or if the beef has been um, butchered by a government certified butcher, it's going to have some type of stamp with a crown on it. You've probably seen that. This happens all the time with governments. And so the idea is, is that Rome has set the soldiers, and Rome has sealed the tomb, and Rome has sealed the tomb with its stamp of approval. So there's some type of government certification that is indicating that this is sealed by Rome itself. So it's got to be good, right? This is powerful seal. It's got to be secure. Imagine that. Imagine that. The tomb is sealed by Rome. Wow, that's a powerful seal. The most powerful government, by the way, that had ever existed on the face of the earth, with all of its power and authority, has sealed the tomb of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
We have the actions of the religious leaders. They're working hard on the Sabbath to get the government to intervene, to seal the tomb of Jesus, and thus prevent those dreaded words from ever being uttered. He has risen from the dead. As Matthew Henry noted, those that opposed Christ and his kingdom will see not only their attempts baffled, but themselves miserably plunged and embarrassed. By their great efforts, they not only prove the resurrection, but they bear witness to the resurrection. They worked that hard to seal the tomb. There is no denying on their part, if they're going to look themselves in the mirror and be honest, that he's risen from the dead. You see how this works? Look, this is what I'm, I really hope you're getting this point. The, the wicked establishment of this world, whether it's the government, whether it's the media, whether it's just simply the force and power of the motion in the world, the wicked establishment works overtime to prevent and hinder and discredit the, the work of Jesus Christ. And what happens is they end up setting the stage for the theater of his glory. Always. Could you imagine a more glorious resurrection? I mean, how glorious of a resurrection is this? You had Joseph of Arimathea purchasing this beautiful tomb that seals itself by the way the stone is structured in the tomb. And then you have the most powerful government in the world securing the tomb with its seal and its soldiers at the disposal of the people that hated Jesus the most. Could you think of a more glorious resurrection? I don't think you can. I don't think you could imagine it. They might as well have told Pilate to suspend the law of gravity. And they would have had an easier job. They might as well have told Pilate to put out the sun or to change the orbit of the planets or to thwart the tide or to turn a man into a woman. And they would have had an easier job. You see, there's some things that the government can't legislate, is what I'm trying to tell you. God has designed government to punish the wicked and protect the good. That's it. That's when they receive the power and blessing of God. But the minute they get out of their lane is the minute they invite terrible judgments from God. And they will humiliate themselves every time. The joke's on them. The joke's on them. Look, the Roman seal secured the tomb. Rome's long gone over a millennium ago. But I'm standing here today to say that he is risen from the dead. And you just said amen because you agree. The joke's on them. There's certain things the government just can't do. Earth, hell, Rome, Jerusalem, and death itself collaborate to seal that tomb, and it does not work. R.T. France, the Greek scholar, he said it so well with this. They held all the cards of earthly power, including access to the Roman governor, but despite all their efforts, they could not contain the Son of God. They couldn't. 
Look, you cannot legislate away the power of the resurrection. It can't be done. You can try with artificial seals and bands of soldiers, but it fails. Look, you can try with state-approved propaganda, and you can buy off the media, and you can censor the internet, and you can oppose the gathering of the church by the force of law. But you need to take heart, church. And you need to understand you who are concerned about truth and who are concerned about the advancement of the gospel and wondering if there's a future for your children. You need to understand that the power of God will not be contained in a tomb that was sealed by the most powerful government in the world. It won't. He will have his way and he will use their plans as a stage for the theater of his power and his glory. They fail in all their attempts. If anyone's listening today from government, their media, if anyone hears about this sermon in those places, you need to understand that you can legislate till kingdom come, but your legislation is nothing compared to the power of God. And the meek shall inherit the earth. And all is you're doing is you're setting the stage for your own humiliating demise. Nothing more. Because our God will not be mocked. And he will have his day. And he will twist the whole thing with a little bit of irony and a hearty laugh to prove his own glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your power. And we trust in you. And we acknowledge your goodness. And we praise your name. Oh, would you strengthen your people this morning with the belief in the power of Jesus Christ who deserves all honor and all glory and whose plans cannot be thwarted. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.